Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Now I'm almost 45 years old. Today my age stopped when the hearts of more than 100 children stopped beating. I see no sense in life if it cannot stop the death. It's said that there were uh, quite a few tears in the crowd yesterday when President Zelensky of Ukraine was addressing our Congress with his emotional appeal for more help. I have been saying for uh, quite a while now that just taking in the news, taking in the Sunday shows or whatever, it sure looks like the momentum is moving toward more U.S. involvement among the thinkers and politicians that I see interviewed. Sure, but to what extent? And uh, we'll consider that question and other things with Dan Balls, chief correspondent covering national politics, the presidency and Congress for the Washington Post. And I note a fellow graduate of the University of Illinois. And during this conversation, you'll you'll learn that at least one of us is of above average intelligence. Dan Balls, welcome, sir. How are you? I'm not sure. I want to find out which one it, what it is. Uh, I'm fine. <laughs> oh, the listeners already know, Dan. So uh, uh, with all... We'll, uh, we'll see. <laughs> uh, so putting the humor aside for a moment, yesterday was an incredibly dramatic day, and uh, I don't recall a day like it uh, looking back over the last quarter century or so. No, I think you're absolutely right. I don't think we've ever seen a, a speech by a foreign leader to a joint session of Congress like we saw yesterday with President Zelensky. I mean, it was, I think, for one, uh, coming in by video link, we, this is not normal. And I think it underscored the, 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 the situation that he is in. Um, he has remained in, in Kiev. He has refused to leave, even though U.S. and other people have urged him to do that. At least they did early on, and he made it clear he was going to stay. Um, he has spoken to a number of, of countries and parliaments and now our Congress. Uh, and his message is basically the same, which is we are grateful for what everyone is doing to support us, but we need more help. Um, and his appeal directly to President Biden um, to be not just the leader of the United States, but the leader of, of the world and, and therefore to be the leader of peace um, was a very direct message saying we are counting on President Biden in the United States to step up and do more than they have done to date. Reading domestic politics is what you're known for. I noticed on the Sunday talk shows, the momentum seems to be moving toward more U.S. involvement one way or another. I was struck by, I think it was Meet the Press, where he had three guests on, and one of them was absolutely for a no-fly zone. One of them was for a moder- uh, uh, some sort of moderated no-fly zone, and then the other one was against. But isn't the political momentum that direction? Well, this is in the direction of trying to do more to defend uh, Ukraine and Ukrainian cities from aerial attacks. But it's not clear at this point. In fact, it seems clear at this point that there is not a consensus within NATO uh, to put up a no-fly zone. Uh, And that's certainly been the position of the United States and President Biden. So I think what people are thinking about or talking about is what is a what is an equivalent of that that would that would allow the Ukrainians to be able to do what they are wanting to do, which is to protect themselves from from these aerial bombardments. Um, And there was another one overnight in this theater that I mean, it's just a tragic situation. Um, 
and so I think that that's where, you know, in essence, the creativity is. But but the president has been very, very clear. And and that is that he is not prepared to do something that, A, puts U.S. forces uh, into direct conflict with Russian forces um, and that he is not going to do something that, in his estimation, could escalate into um, a world war. And 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 that's you know in a sense that's the tension between President Zelensky Zelensky and President Biden. I mean they each have they each have important roles to play right now, and and Zelensky is playing his frankly brilliantly. Um, he's you know he's become a beacon to the rest of the world as as a leader of courage and creativity and and resilience and and in rallying his people and rallying support. Um, but he has a different role than President Biden does, and his role is to uh, to do everything he can to get people to help his country. And President Biden's is to do everything he can to hold together this coalition that that he and his team helped to build around uh, the world, and particularly in Europe. Um, but to but to do it in ways that don't cross certain lines that could turn this into a you know a potentially nuclear conflict. But staying away from the rightness or wrongness of a no-fly zone or our, our involvement, I just wonder if you sense the drum beats there in Washington D.C. The way they, the way they grew in the lead up to Iraq back in the day, that sort of thing, where the foreign policy establishment, you know, the, the polling that politicians look at, all that sort of stuff, is is starting to move a certain direction. Do you have any sense of that? Well, there is certainly growing support to do more, and there is some support for a no-fly zone. That's true. I think the difference today between the comparison you're drawing with, with the run-up to Iraq, in the run-up to Iraq, uh, it, was the, it was the Bush administration that was leading that um, and that was pushing for that and that was calling for that. that they, were, they were developing the case uh, to, to uh, justify the invasion of Iraq. We don't have that in this situation. We have, we have a, a a Biden administration, which is which is resisting that, but the pressure is building underneath, and I think that's what we'll see over the next days and weeks, mm. uh, depending on what happens in Ukraine with the with the Russian army and the Russian forces. They, I mean, the, the the situation there is horrific, as we know. I mean, what the Russians are doing, um, you know, the president of the United States called Vladimir Putin a war criminal yesterday. I mean, that's an extraordinary statement on the part of the president to do that. I know there are other people who believe that and that, that there's work underway uh, that could eventually lead to war crimes prosecutions. But for the president of the United States to call the president of another country a war criminal tells you kind of what the emotional level of this conflict has has, has become. Um, and that that has an effect on how people think about what the United States and others should do in terms of supplying military aid. I think there's no question, and the president announced another $800 million in aid yesterday, that there will be more military support provided. And I think the question is, does it reach the level that President Zelensky says he definitely needs? Dan Balls of the Washington Post is on the line. Dan, it, it strikes me that uh, so much of politics is so performative these days, and to get to contributions and clicks and the rest of it, you want to say the strongest thing. You want to be the, the hardiest caller for whatever. Um, and, and with all due respect to the discussion of no-fly zones and the rest of it, it feels to me like NATO and, and even Congress is feeling pretty comfortable with the path we're on the amount of aid being offered, the amount of lethal aid, that sort of thing. There doesn't seem to be a lot of meaningful dissent to me. Am I wrong about that? 
I think that's right. I think that uh, I think that the that the alliance, the NATO alliance, and the European alliance, which which goes uh, beyond that, um, feels as though what they have done in the immediate you know days and weeks after the invasion um, was necessary and, if not sufficient, um, momentarily at least equal to what they were you know what they were hoping they would do. But I think that that one of the things that is the reality in, in a situation like this is, you know, this is a this is an organic situation. This is a dynamic uh, moment and events change attitudes. And so I think that as this has gone on, as the weakness of the, the Russian army has become apparent and as the as the uh, courageousness and, and skill, frankly, of the Ukrainian army has become evident, um, there is a desire to, to do more. Now, President Zelensky laid out a couple of things yesterday beyond the no-fly zone and, and uh, receiving military aircraft from, from NATO. Um, you know, he's, he's talking about additional sanctions, that the, that the U.S. and the allies should uh, impose additional sanctions. I believe that's under review. Um, certainly they've done a lot and tougher sanctions than we've ever seen, but there's, there's always more that probably can be done. And I think that's under review. Interestingly enough, one of the things he outlined, and I don't see this happening at any time soon, but he basically said that the, that the international structures put in place after world war two. And I think by that, he particularly met NATO, um, have been insufficient for this moment. In other words, that they have that, that because Ukraine is not a NATO country, um, Article Five doesn't apply to NATO, which is to say, if a NATO country is attacked, uh, every country responds. Um, they are not afforded that, you know, that defense because they are not a member of NATO. And what he is saying is, um, we have a structure that doesn't. Uh, that isn't able to deal with the situation that his country is in right now. And perhaps it's time for some new structure to be put in place. That's a long-term um, idea, but it's an interesting idea um, because I think that this is, this is such a delicate situation in terms of those questions about conflict between NATO and Russia um, and the, and the risks that that would involve because of Russia's, nuclear capabilities, both both long range and, and battlefield nuclear weapons. So um, all, all of this is, is, is grist for future discussion. But the immediate question is, how much how, how many more arms are we going to be able to put into the hands of the Ukrainians? And I think that um, that that's going to accelerate. Dan Balls, chief correspondent covering national politics, the presidency and the Congress for The Washington Post for many moons. Dan, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time. Thank you. Appreciate it. Absolutely. He, he makes an excellent point in the difference between now and the run-up to Iraq in terms of, I keep hearing, you know, the sounds of war drums in the distance, and they seem to be growing, is that uh, the Bush administration was leading that parade and trying to get people to join in, whereas the Biden administration is trying to stop that and is being pushed by maybe public opinion and some policy people, but... Uh, the administration yeah. is not is not beating the drums and trying to get other people to join in. Yeah, I think the uh, conversation about uh, more kinetic action, whether it be the much-discussed no-fly zone or whatever else, I think that is wildly disproportional in cable news as opposed to 
in in Congress, in the halls of power, in the White House, in uh, the halls of NATO, the EU. I just I think it's it's overblown. Nobody serious is seriously talking about that. I don't think, or at least very few people. Well, policy people certainly are. Um, they're definitely well, talking about if, it seriously. But if it's if it's uh, is it only to explain why it's not going to happen? Or the vast majority of those discussions? No, no. They're arguing for it. Absolutely arguing for it. Well, they're crazy. Um, I think I know what's going on. I figured it out, so that's good. I can tell you that. Uh, also, the crazy stuff that Putin said yesterday in the speech, he said some nutty stuff. He's off his rocker. He's off his rocker. That's next. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. So Putin gave a, uh, some people called unhinged uh, television performance yesterday, several minutes where he was rambling on about a variety of things. I'll hit you with some highlights of that in a second. But here's my current wacky plan. I mentioned it the other day, but, or my theory. Because a variety of things just don't fit together quite make sense. Why, why is Zelensky still, you know, going before Congress and, and begging for something that has been taken off the table completely by the White House? We're, we're, there's not going to be a no-fly zone. Just end of discussion. That's not even mm-hmm. on the table. And that has been stated over and over and over again, yet he keeps asking for it and everything like that. I think we're working with Zelensky. You keep begging for that no-fly zone. So that we can say, absolutely not, we will not do that, that would be war with Russia, we are not going to do that. While we supply them just ridiculous amounts of the highest tech armaments that exist on the planet, Uh so that... Putin is mostly focused on all the things we won't do. That's why the Atlantic, everything from the Atlantic to the Wall Street Journal, has written long articles. Why do we keep telling Putin the things we won't do? Because we are doing practically everything else. And we want the focus to be on things we won't do and not on the things that we are doing that are clearly acts of war. Right. Right. Uh, that, uh, unlike many of your theories, that one holds water. That's some pretty, pretty solid thinking. And, and join that to this, that uh, Zelensky is doing what they call pegging the negotiation too. Right. Right. If he keeps saying we need to know fly zone, it's like your daughter constantly begging you for a pony. Please a pony, daddy. You might get her the Barbie Jeep and the dream house just because you know you're not going to give her a pony. I think so. he keeps asking for the pony, and uh, and and meanwhile, we're giving you everything else in the world, and it's kind of flying under the radar in a weird sort of way. That's probably the wrong expression to use, since there are actually radars <laughs> well, involved. Certainly ironic, And yes. flying under the radar is what we're trying to avoid. Um, yes. But uh, I, I, that's what I think is going on. I, that's what I think we're going to learn over time, that it was a way to do the old switcheroo on Putin. While we are clearly at war with him, you know, a number of people, Ian Bremmer said, the West is at war with Russia. Why don't we all just get used to this? But we, we don't want that to be the narrative. We want mm-hmm. the narrative to be, we won't give them the no-fly zone. We're not willing. Nope, sorry. As bad as it is, I don't care how many children refugees you get every second, how many theaters are bombed like they were yesterday. Um, we're not giving you the no-fly zone when we are doing a lot. And as usual, I'm mystified by why the narrative matters as much as it does. I mean, Putin knows what we're doing, I think. 
Uh, we know Putin knows what we're doing. We know what he's doing. But it's important that the narrative be X. I just added I'm mystified by that. Yesterday, Vladimir Putin referred to pro-Western Russians as scum and traitors who needed to be removed from society. The Russian people will always be able to distinguish true patriots from the scum and traitors and simply spit them out like a fly that accidentally flew into their mouths, said Vladimir Putin yesterday. Mm, That's some good colorful of a metaphor in there, Vlad. I'm convinced that such a natural and necessary self-purification of society will only strengthen our country, our solidarity, our cohesion, and readiness to respond to any challenges. We need to blow them out like Tom Brady blows out a snot rocket on the sidelines. Uh, and he went on about the um, the oligarchs who have left the country, and all they care about is their fogwa and and oysters, and they are no, <laughs> and they are traitors to their own mothers. They would sell their own mothers for money, and so he did not one sound like a guy who's ready to negotiate and wind this thing down, or two, a guy that's completely got his marbles. To, you know, I think he's off his rocker. Well, one wonders what's happening behind the scenes. That's his support structure, the, the the power brokers, the oligarchs, the billionaires. And if he's throwing them, you know, to the wolves, uh, what's next? Why is there talk on a daily basis about negotiations and uh, and all that sort of stuff? Back to the idiot uh, narrative thing. So everybody looks like they're trying to achieve peace, even though everybody knows what's going on. Well, even Zelensky brings it up regularly. We we, we feel right. like we might be closer. I don't think so. Did you listen to Putin's speech yesterday? We're going to talk to Mike Lyons coming up in a few seconds to see how bad the morale actually is among the Russians, among other things. Strong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. The world needs the Ukrainians to win, and that means the Ukrainians need to be able to kill Russians. And to kill Russians, they need more weapon systems. They've got a will to fight. We know who Zelensky is. We know who the Ukrainians are. What he asked us yesterday is, who are the Americans? And who is the Biden administration? Mm -hmm. He has the courage of his convictions. Do we have ours? We should. We're a superpower. We should act like it. Well, it was after Zelensky's speech that the Biden administration announced what another $800 million of aid that they're going to send, including some really high-tech weapon systems that I don't really, I'm not exactly sure what they all do. Right, and indeed, to discuss that, uh, please welcome Mike Lyons, military analyst. Mike has served uh, the United States military uh, in many uh, theaters throughout his career, received the Bronze Star for his actions in combat. Uh, Mike, welcome. How are you, sir? Hey, morning, guys. Great to be back. Uh, thank you. It's great to have you. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the the new uh, weapon systems that allegedly are going to be sent Ukrainians' way. What should laymen know about them? So, so the list includes really everything that a, a ground pounder or an infantryman would want uh, right away. Grenade launchers, rifles, pistols, helmets, uh, lots of small arms ammo. 
javelins. We've seen what they can do already to tanks. The AT-4 are NA armor weapons as well, 6,000 of those. It's a pretty big number. A little more difficult for them to fire. You're going to give a signature away, but, but a tremendous firepower. But in the package is this one thing in particular of uh, these called uh, switchblades. They're these uh, what are normally referred to as kamikaze drones because they're kind of fire once, um, let, let you loiter around an area, and then let you go after kind of one target, and then they get destroyed. They're controlled by you know, like an app that sits like on, on an iPhone, basically, and allows you to uh, you know launch them with with considerable range. Let's say with anywhere within 10 miles of a target, loiter around, look for what you want to hit. It'll have um, the capability to heat seek. It'll have uh, infrared, all those kind of things on it. You can paint a target with it, uh, and then it basically will, will kill anything it lands uh, lands on. There's only right now 100 in the package, but I think they're going to try to pump that up because what's going to be important in this fight now is going to be counter battery and what that is is going after the artillery that's about to shell Kiev and these other cities at, in the middle of the night so let's go after that's where the that's where the most threat is right now is going after those artillery batteries and that that's going to be a perfect weapon system to do it okay interesting so that's the the idea the the big worry is that they 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 get Kiev surrounded and just pound them into submission like they did in Aleppo and various other right. places around the world. And these weapon systems might keep that from happening? Right. And, and the other things that they're giving them. Now, what, what the Ukraine military is doing is they're going on these night patrols. They're, they're obviously defending the city, but they know the terrain better than the Russians do. And they're going out on these night patrols. And, and they're still you know, literally tearing the tops off these tanks and the BMPs, other infantry fighting vehicles. And, and now in particular, if you go after, you know, every artillery round has a return address. And, and, and so if we bring them this kind of capability that will allow them to do it. You know, the, everyone wants the, the MiGs and the, and the SA-300s and all these theater-level weapons. I mean, we might as well give them a space shuttle. The, the, it's not going to do them any good. At the end of the day, you have to get down on the ground and go fight these guys where they are. And we're giving them now this kind of capability that the Russians can't necessarily defend from, especially if they're not going to stay on the offense. If they stay kind of wallowing in Novocaine in their convoys and not moving, they become sitting duck targets, and, and we're going to give them the capability to go after them. Which leads us beautifully to the next thing we wanted to talk about. We don't want to engage in wishful thinking or anything like that, gung-ho-ism. But it, mm-hmm. it does seem as if the Ukrainian military is performing quite well. They're inflicting serious damage, and the Russian forces are ineffective at best, demoralized. What's your take on the state of the Russian forces? It's they're, they're all, you know you can't say decimated because they have so many forces that they've put in theater, but the fact that a non-peer adversary fights uh, Ukraine fights the Russians to a standstill is just incredible. You never would have thought it three weeks ago, um, and it's a virtual stalemate. They still haven't really taken any of those other towns outside of Kherson, uh, while Mariupol is getting hammered, of course, at night, um, as well as um, Kharkiv. And they still can't seem to surround Kiev because they're allowing convoys kind of getting in and out. They're able to get people in and out and supplies in and out. So, at the, again, the, the, the fact that they are fighting so ferociously, it's their land, and you lay that over the fact that Russian soldiers just aren't fighting. I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that, that this is going to turn on how the Russian soldier was going to fight, whether they were going to commit some of these atrocities. They're just not even interested in being in the battle anymore. They're recognizing they're in death traps. The, the vehicles they have are not sufficient. Um, they're, they're, they're not capable of, of sustaining the fight. Um, and so at this point, and, and, we're, and they're starting to run out of ammo. They're starting to run out of food and fuel. So it's all, it's all 
trending in the direction of Ukraine. Not over yet by any stretch, but trending in the direction of Ukraine. Yeah, I don't know if you saw that New York Times article about the morale situation they've got, but they've lost, according Mm -hmm. to our Pentagon's estimates, 7,000 men so far, and a high casualty rate, and if you know this better than me, I just read it from the New York Times, and if you go Mm -hmm. over 10% casual rate, casualty rate in a lot of those units they can't function and that's where a lot of them are in russia it, is it true that so many of the generals being toward the front is an indication that things are going poorly right so that's another one the fact that they're getting killed means that they're literally getting out of vehicles or wherever their headquarters are and having to either direct traffic or do things and inspire and motivate um whatever for whatever reason that the soldiers there are not fighting and and um, the general officers think that they could kind of motivate and move people around. This is what happens when you have a conscript army. People had contracts. The contracts were a year long. The contracts expired. Some of them expired a few months ago, and they've been forced now to serve, and they're, they're just not interested. So this is the same group of soldiers that have also been sitting around for the past six months inside of Russia uh, in, in kind of bivouac conditions, let's call it, which are hard. I mean, it's, it's a hardship. It's cold. There's lots of things going on. So it's the, the human element of combat is, is just always there. I, I could tell you this, the same thing happened in the Middle East with the Iraqi military. They had no interest in fighting us at the time. They, raised, they rose their hands and they were not interested in fighting. Well, that's what's happening here right now. And, and the fact that um, Ukraine is not stopping and they're just going to continue to go after them is just you know, great to see. This, this war is going to be studied by NATO for years to come with regard to what, what Ukraine has done in the urban fight and what Ukraine has done in, in order to mobilize this fight against what, what is a super power interesting we're talking to military analyst mike lyons mike is there anything that russia is holding back that you think we might see in the theater in the future as they grow more desperate um any card you're surprised they haven't played yeah they haven't played the risk card right so they've not really done anything audacious they haven't there's no other you know weapon system they can kind of bring to the battlefield that that that, that they haven't done this the thermal bombs i mean we can talk you know chemical uh, biological nuclear doesn't give them any advantage it, it, it makes them a further pariah i still i still don't think we'd respond to that anyway um but there's no second echelon and what they've just not done is they've just not taken the risks that, that are required in combat. To, and, and they're afraid to fly. I just, again, 21 days, 22 days into this, they don't own the airspace. It's just unthinkable. We would never fight a war like this. The first thing you would do is shut the airspace down and make sure that we had air superiority to protect our, our, our soldiers on the ground. And, and, again, that's the other lesson countries are going to learn right now is you better be able to protect your skies if you, if you ever you know, want to get into a conflict. But, but no, what, what they've not brought to the table is risk, and they've not brought the audacity and the element of surprise and all the other things that are important from a military perspective in order to win and they just thought they just thought they were going to be able to show up and this was going to be over and they've just been sadly mistaken one more question and this comes from you know an average doofus like me just watching the the, the tv newscasts at the end of the day well i can't remember the last time that i watch the evening newscasts every day because there was something going on so important like i have been lately with this but i, I see these uh, Russian troops like moving toward a town or into a town and all these Ukrainian citizens just jumping up on the tanks and the trucks and they've got flags mm-hmm. and they're they're yelling at the soldiers and pushing them and right. stuff like that. And and 
And I always wonder, how come the soldiers aren't just shooting these people? I mean, they're willing to bomb hospitals full of pregnant women. They're willing to shell theaters where people are cowering in the basement. Uh, So why are they putting up with grandmas getting in their face as they roll into town? Is that is that an indication that the Soviet troops are Soviet? The Russian troops are not that motivated or what is that? Yeah, I think so. And again, they're not committing the atrocities at the ground level, at the at the face-to-face level. And, and the, the decision to bomb those hospitals and what they've done with cruise missiles, those are all strategic decisions that get made at higher headquarters, artillery headquarters and the like. It's all you know targeting, and it's very impersonal, the indirect fire to that. But when you see them on the ground like that, you're right, that, that they're, they've not... Uh, that, those tanks, for example, when they enter in those Ukraine city, towns, they, they could start blowing things up for the sake of blowing things up. But a tank is pretty powerful. Um, and the fact that, uh, that, uh, that they're even riding there now, and, and, and we've got the javelins and we've got other things to blow in those tanks up, just, again, just shows me that the Russian soldiers aren't looking to fight on any level. Wow, so interesting. Uh, looking forward in a grim way to seeing this unfold, uh, just to see where it goes. Uh, military analyst Mike Lyons. Mike, we enjoy it so much. Thanks uh, for the insights. Great, guys. Thanks for having me. Yep, yep. You know, Dave Grossman's uh, groundbreaking book on killing, which I recommend to everybody, it's just so interesting uh, about the military service and uh, the training of soldiers and the nature of one human being killing another. Um, one of the points he makes in the book is that, and this is incredibly consistent, the more distant the killing, the more willing people are to do it. I mean, it's it's kind of self-evident um, to launch a weapon that hits a building 25 miles away is fairly easy for people to do. And then the directness of the killing progresses to, you know, an anti-tank weapon, to a rifle, down to a bayonet. And one of the things they've realized is most soldiers have zero interest in using their bayonet. It's too horrible. They just won't. And uh, so I think that's part of the answer to the question. Yeah, you can strategically decide to lob some artillery somewhere. But the idea that I, as a Russian, who, as we've heard, it's a near 100% likelihood. I got a grandma. I got an uncle. I got a sister. I got somebody who's either living in Ukraine or is Ukrainian. The idea that I'm going to just shoot people who are saying, hey, you're our brothers, go home again. I just don't think you're going to see a lot of that. Yeah, because we, we've seen totalitarian governments over our lifetimes more than willing to put a rifle butt in the face of a college student, if you got to clear out Tiananmen Square or uh, you're going into uh, Syria or whatever, and the fact that they're letting these, you know, 40-year-old women walk up to soldiers and call them, you effing this and you effing that, get the F out of my country, and they aren't just flicking the butt of their rifle and knocking her to the ground and saying, get out of here, means they don't want to do that. Right. They don't even want to slap them. Right. They just stand there and get abused. Yeah, That famous video of the grandma going up to that soldier and saying, here, put these sunflower seeds in your pocket, because when you die, I want something to grow where your body's laying. The fact that they put up with that means something to me. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I don't want to overread it, but boy, I, I can't find anybody who disagrees with this assessment. There's just no will among the Russian frontline troops. Yeah, that's fascinating uh, and really troubling. Uh, text line 415-295-KFTC. The 
Armstrong and Getty Show. My Oscar favorite, the movie Don't Look Up, might come true as we've got a comet headed toward Earth. Maybe we'll talk about that later in the program. Mm, probably should have been our lead today. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Is it like extinction level, or do I have to stay tuned? Stay tuned. <laughs> we'll let you know if you're all going to die after this commercial. Will do. Uh, so I'm taking a look around the country at the various super radical district attorneys. Yes, we're going to pivot away from Ukraine because our country continues to function and in some cases continues to be dragged in the wrong direction. Uh, for instance, your uh, Chesso Bodine in uh, San Francisco uh, County. Uh, your uh, George Gascon, the weird Kermit the Frog, if he was from Transylvania character, who was in charge of San Francisco, is now is now trying as hard as he can to ruin L.A., uh, All the, both of whom are facing uh, recalls. And I'm, I'm scanning the country, and it's interesting, and, and politics often works like this. There's a racial component to a lot of politics, and in your whitish progressive cities... You're seeing a lot of recalls, a lot of uh, action to undo some of the horrible policies of the progressives, including in in the way, way, way left, uh, Seattle, for instance, and, and Portland, uh, San Francisco, L.A. What's interesting is if you are the black D.A. in Chicago or St. Louis or that sort of thing, um, not nearly as strong rumblings because they can make it about race mm. instead of purely politics. Interesting. But, uh, San Francisco D.A. Chesa Bodine, well-known Marxist, has just 12 weeks left to make perhaps the biggest case of his career, according to the San Francisco Chironicle, convincing the city's frustrated voters that he should keep his job, I would add, amidst skyrocketing crime and, and lawlessness of the sort that hasn't been seen since, I don't know, the Stone Age or the Middle Ages. They did a, uh, a poll. Uh, 68% said they would vote yes on recalling Bodine. 68%. 74% said they have an unfavorable opinion of him. 78% rated his job performance as only fair or poor. That's a lot now of that, white supremacists. You don't expect that many white supremacists in a city like San Francisco. Three quarters. Oh, that's right. Yeah, every recall is uh, branded as white supremacy, uh, which is odd because Chesa Bodine's whiter than St. Patrick. Uh, and now, granted, this was a poll that was put on by the people in favor of recalling Bodine. So I did not see the specific wording of the questions, although it seems very straightforward. Interestingly enough, the poll polled in English and Chinese. The polling company did not offer the questions in Spanish because the monolingual Spanish-speaking electorate is estimated to be very small for the June primary. Hmm. Uh, If I'm a regular Democrat, I really hate the fact that the, 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 the left flank has taken this whole crime is a construct attitude. There's no such thing as crime. There's just people on the police, etc. There, there yeah. are just people who've been wronged by the system trying to steal baby formula so they can stay alive. Um, because obviously great numbers of Democrats even don't like it. If you got 74% or unhappy with the DA in San Francisco, that's almost entirely Democrats that, mm-hmm. that don't like their DA. It's just a fringe element that actually believe this crap. Yeah, I think the regular person point of view is is that, hey, uh, my city sucks now. These policies don't work. Uh, the Walgreens, they're locking up my toothpaste. You know, just the quality of life stuff. From a politico's point of view, though, 
I wonder if some mainstream Democrats are. You remember John McCain, how he secretly stabbed the Tea Party in the back because he wanted that kind of moderate, mainstreamy Republican thing to hold sway and not these dangerous, crazy Tea Party types, and that's sarcasm. Um, I'm sure there are a lot of mainstream Democrats who are thinking, you know, we're going to get absolutely shellacked in the midterms. I mean, historic, crazy shellacking. And that's probably a good thing. We'll blame it all on the progressive wing, and we'll get them to shut up. I'll bet they're making that calculation. They're locking up my toothpaste. <laughs> This one is such an easy win for, for, for normal America, whether you're a regular Democrat or a Republican. This idea that, hey, crime is a thing. People will rob you blind if you let them. you got to have rules. you got to put people in jail who break the law. Mm-hmm. It's such an easy win, that issue. Yeah, it is. It's crazy that a society has to, as I've said many times, have to veer from guardrail to guardrail. And people forget so quickly, oh, that's right, being smashed in the face and having my stuff taken, having my daughter threatened, having my wife threatened, that sort of thing. Uh, That's horrible and ugly and has affected my life for the rest of my days. But then when crime is low because of anti-crime policies, aggressive prosecution, jailing people who need to be in freaking jail... You know, the crime recedes and people start listening to the ideologues, the theoreticians, the, the college professors who explain to them and their poor dewy-eyed children who are there paying tens of thousands of dollars to be uh, brainwashed every year at the so-called colleges and universities. Um, anyway, uh, we start to think, yeah, well, I don't know. Uh, people have uh, tough lives and and uh, capitalism concentrates wealth among the, uh, the, the 1%. And yeah, that's the only reason they commit crimes. And then they pass these insane you know, unicornian laws and the result, which is as inevitable as when you drop a spoon, it falls to the floor. Any one year old can tell you that. And they're hilariously amused by that, too. Uh, When that inevitable result happens, people say, oh, my God, wow, I just never saw that coming. And we have to veer to the other guardrail again. Um, We cannot prosecute our way out of the desperation that we have. I want to suck your blood, Miss Piggy. The Transylvanian Kermit the Flo- Frog. Kermit the Flog. Wow, that was unintentionally something. Uh, George Gascon there. All right, something completely different coming up next hour. We need to uh, talk a little bit more about education and, and the woke thing in schools. Uh, back to Ukraine. Some interesting new developments. If you miss the next hour, grab the podcast Mark later. Tom and Getty.